If you have a Bible, you can open it to guess, you'll never guess what, to Matthew, because we are going to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And we are on chapter, we're in chapter seven now. And uh, this morning, we're going to be talking a little bit about prayer um, and Jesus teaching to his disciples on prayer. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter seven, we're going to read, I'll put it up here for you, Matthew seven, seven through 11, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So here's Jesus teaching to his disciples. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples about prayer. There's a reason that they want to hear from him about this. Um, it's because Jesus is known for having a great and powerful prayer life. You see that throughout his ministry and throughout his time serving with his disciples as they're following him. Now, um, like I've said in the past, the Sermon on the Mount is not just one sermon given in one specific period of time, but it is a few different times that Jesus taught his disciples that have been all gathered together. We see that because as we look in other Gospels, we see sometimes longer accounts of some of the things that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes shorter accounts of things that have been brought together in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is one of those instances in which I think when we look at one of the ways that Jesus talks about this issue, you see sort of his larger teaching, and it's in the book of Luke. Um, and it comes right before the, uh, it kind of, he basically says what we just read, and then he says the Lord's Prayer in Luke, and then he says one other thing. And since we've covered the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to cover this thing this morning, I want to talk about this last part that Jesus highlights in Luke, because I think it gives us a way fuller picture of what he means when he says, ask and seek and knock. And it's in Luke 11, and I'll put it up here on the screen. Jesus says this in Luke 11, verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So in Luke, uh, the disciples are coming to Jesus and they say, you know, teach us on prayer. Uh, we know that because it's at the very beginning of this whole passage. They say, teach us to pray, teach us about prayer. And he responds by giving them the Lord's Prayer. And then by saying this, and then saying the passage that we're going to look at, the few verses in Matthew 7 today. Now, there's a reason why this matters so much, because in Jewish life and Jewish culture, prayer was a really big deal. People prayed a lot. They prayed multiple times a day. You prayed in the morning in your home with your family, probably, and then you would pray often in the afternoon or the evening in the temple. You prayed publicly very often as well. Prayers were long. Prayers were sometimes very elaborate. 
They were oftentimes memorized prayers where you said the same thing again and again, and you would tweak it here or there depending on the situation specifically that you were in. Prayer was something that everybody saw religious people do, and so everybody knew that if you're a spiritual person, if you have a, a rabbi that you're following, if you're a disciple, if you're a good Jew, then you are going to pray. You're going to have a prayer life. And what the disciples saw in Jesus was something very interesting. They saw somebody not just who prayed publicly, not just who said fancy prayers, they saw somebody who prayed all the time and would often even go away on his own to pray. He would leave and pray alone. He would pray, and then he would come back, and he would like be happier, and he would have more strength and joy and confidence and encouragement that seemed to come from that time away praying. It seemed like prayer was very life-giving for Jesus. It was important for him. And so the disciples were like, Jesus, teach us how to pray, because whatever you are doing when you go pray, it seems to really be working, and we want to know about it. And so, so he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, and, uh, and, then, he, and then he tells them this. Now, uh, when it comes to this passage in, in Luke 11, and when it comes to what we read about in Matthew 7, some find these things encouraging. They say, look at the great detail that Jesus is going to to tell us how prayer works. This is so helpful. Thank you, Jesus. But oftentimes, when I'm honest, I read passages like this and find them discouraging because I go, that's not exactly how prayer works for me, that I ask and I get something that I want. In fact, how many of us, you know, are talking to people about spiritual stuff and and they go, oh yeah, prayer, I don't really do, I'm not really into that because it is just way too predictable, right? Prayer is so predictable. You, I, I asked for something one time and then God gave it to me. And then I asked for something else and he gave it to me. And then I asked for something else and he gave it to me. I was like, this isn't any fun, right? There's no mystery in this. I just, he gives me everything I ask for because he loves me and he's my father, right? No one has said that, I don't think ever. That is not how we think of prayer. And so sometimes we find comfort in the ambiguity of it. We go, well, then I probably just don't fully understand how it works. Or, you know, there's probably a lot more to it. I mean, he's a pretty big God. It's a big universe. I don't get it all. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Let me, let me emphasize one more time. No, no, no. If you ask, you will receive. Okay? If you seek, you will find. Keep knocking. You know, he'll open the door. No, no, no. no. Well, okay, he's my father. He loves me. He's probably not the same as like an earthly father. No, 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 no. He's just like an earthly father. Okay, Jesus, he'll give you these good things. He'll give you things that will help you. You want stuff? I mean, come on, you're asking him for important things. Is that how you feel? Don't you feel like you're asking him for important things that you need, right? Like bread and fish and life and stuff like that. Yeah, well, he's a good father. Any good father would give it to you, right? Who wouldn't? Okay, and the detail that Jesus goes through to make his point often feels discouraging to me because I go, yeah, that's not at all how it feels when I pray. I don't feel like that's what I'm seeing. That's the results that I'm giving. And so the more that he spells it out, the more confusion I will often feel, the more of a mystery it feels like there is. But there's a reason why he's saying these things. There's a point that he's making about prayer, and it's important, and it actually, believe it or not, does make sense. And more importantly, it does line up with reality. It does line up with the way things actually work. Now, before this, Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer, walked them all the way through it, and we went over that a few weeks ago. And if you want to sum up the Lord's Prayer, you could sum it up very simply with this, your kingdom come, your will be done. All of the Lord's Prayer is ultimately us saying, in one form or another, I want your kingdom to come now, here, more of it, 
more of you, and I want your will to be done, which, as we said, has got to be the hardest thing to ever say. None of us will ever say that to another person, probably. Hey, I want your will done in my life. I'd like you to go ahead and just decide what happens in my life. I think that would be a good idea. And it's just as hard for us, it turns out, to say that to God, to say, no, God, I want your will done in my life. Because for most of us, prayer is really nothing more, or many of us, prayer is often nothing more than just my will, my will, my will. Why is it not being done? Father, please let my will be done. And so all the Sermon on the Mount that he goes through and every step and every part of it is essentially Jesus saying, the way we pray to our Father is this, your kingdom come, your will be done, which ultimately means this. It means I want more of you, God. It's three, there's three words, more of God. This is the things that we're praying. Now, if we're praying that, then that means that somehow more of God, his kingdom, his will is better than whatever it is that we have right now, which means that if we got more of God, if we got more of his kingdom on this earth, that we would have joy, that we would have hope, that we would be stronger, that we would have strength, and that we would have life. Because the things that Jesus tells his disciples to do, he promises them, bring these things. They will lead you to joy. They will lead you to life. They will lead you to strength. So he says that to his disciples, and we know it is true, because look at Jesus. Look at the joy and the strength and the peace that he has. Look at the confidence and faith that he has. And on top of that, The disciples are really wrestling through it here, but years down the road when they become apostles and they're leaders in the church, what do you see in them? You see a profound sense of joy and peace and confidence and hope because they have begun to experience the truth that when you live this way and ask for these things and God gives them to you, that you will experience that stuff. So we, with confidence, go, okay, okay, so if what Jesus is saying is true, then when I seek these things, more of God, when ultimately my prayers are above all else, I just want more of your kingdom right now. I want more of your will and your presence. I just like want physically more of you in my life that that will lead me to these very good things. We trust that. We trust that that's what we ought to be praying. The Lord's Prayer is what to pray. What this passage is that we're looking at this morning is how to pray. It's not the contents of what we pray, it's the way in which we pray. And because he's talking about the way we do something, he's using lots of examples. He's using lots of parables, these short little parables. And so this first one that we looked at is a great one. Which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So at this time, people would travel great distances, and they would usually do it in the evening or at night because they lived in the desert, and it was really hot in the desert. And so you would often get places very late at night. Now, in the Jewish culture, nothing was more important than honor and hospitality. So when someone came to your home, everything, it was all about 
showing them hospitality, welcoming them in and taking care of them, because by doing that, you were showing these people great honor. And so when someone came to your home in the middle of the night after a long journey, whether they were with their family or just alone, you didn't just leave the light on for them. You didn't just leave a key out for them. You didn't say, like, I'll leave the door unlocked or whatever and some water out. No, you were there, and you brought them in, and you welcomed them in, and you gave them food to eat, and you gave them drink, and you gave them a bed, and you said, here, now I want you to rest. That was a really big deal. And so if someone comes to your house on a long journey, they've just arrived, it's late at night, which often happened, and in the middle of the night you realize, I don't have any food for them and they're starving. That right there is the worst thing that could happen. It is so bad that you are willing to walk to your neighbor's house in the middle of the night and pound on their door. How many of you I mean, if you've ever had to knock on someone's door in the middle of the night, there is nothing good about that. There's nothing good about it. When you pound on that door, everything that happens from that moment until they get to the door is not good, right? Everything. You're like, they, they, they're really, they're just getting angrier and angrier. If the bigger the house, the worse it probably is because they got farther to come. They got to go downstairs or do whatever, you know, trip over things. We have like a gate at the top of our stairs for our dog. It's really bad. You could like fall down it and die. So that probably happened. And then they come to the door and there you are, right? We were reading a book, uh, we were at a bookstore, my, my mom's in town, we were at a bookstore with our kids, and we were talking about all these books that I read growing up, and we were talking about this book, The Napping House. Uh, if you've ever heard of this book, it's such a great book. Um, and this book is very simple, it's about a house where people are napping. And they sleep in a big pile, not in a weird way, and this is what it looks like. You got a grandma, and you got a kid, and you got a dog, and you got a cat, and you got a mouse, and you can't see it, but there's a flea on top of the mouse. And uh, they all pile on top of each other, and they're sleeping, and it's just the most epic nap ever. And when you're a parent of little kids, you actually like this book because you're like, naps, so awesome. I do love a good nap, right? And that's, and I could probably sleep that well. And then what happens is the flea bites the mouse, and it bites the cat, and then the dog, and they all jump up in the air, and they go outside and play, and it's sunny. Um, so here's the reason I'm showing you this. Because in the first century, you had two rooms in your house. You had an upper room and a lower room. And the upper room was where everyone slept. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Because this person says in this parable, I am sleeping with my kids, with my family. You slept on the upper room. Your kids slept on the upper room. If they were there, their kids slept on the upper room. And it gets even better. Because if it's cold outside, guess who else sleeps in the upper room? The animals. The animals sleep in the upper room with you. You keep them warm. They keep you warm. Everybody's okay with it because it's cold outside that night. So this person is sleeping in a pile of people and animals on the upper room of their house. And it is the middle of the night and someone is pounding on their door. And it says they come to him and they says, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. The door is now shut. Obviously, the door is shut. They're pounding on it. Why is he saying that? He's saying, do not bother me. This door will not be opening for you tonight. Okay? I cannot get up and give you anything. My children are with me in bed. I tell you, though, Jesus says, he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This person is asking for something that is important enough that they're willing to wake up their neighbor in the middle of the night. And they're asking for something that is important enough that they're going to wake them up in a way that says, you have no choice. You are answering this door. That's got to be pretty important. That's got to be a pretty big thing that gets you up to your neighbor's house and makes you force them to get out of bed 
and wake up their whole family. If you've ever woken up way earlier than you wanted to and you couldn't go back to bed in a house full of people, not a very fun experience, not a very good thing. This is not a, nothing about this picture is a positive, is a good night, right? These neighbors' relationship is probably over at this point. And it says that they will answer the door, but why do they answer the door? They don't answer it because they're a good friend. They don't answer it because you knocked well. They don't answer it because you have an arrangement, right? Listen, we're best friends, and when you come to my door in the middle of the night and I open the door and I see you, I'm gonna be like, it's you. I'm not so mad because we have that arrangement, right? It's not like that. It's like, we're gonna open the door and you're gonna be mad at me. But this person will rise and give you whatever you need. Why? Why do they do it? They do it for one reason, one word, persistence. Jesus is telling his disciples to be persistent. Now when we look at our passage for this morning in Matthew 7, and he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He is saying, be that persistent when you do it. This is in the imperative, which means the verb tense that he's using and he's saying this in, it means to keep doing it again and again. He's not saying ask once and seek once and knock once and then it will all happen. He's saying go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. Be persistent. This is like if you're lost in the woods or in the desert somewhere and you come out into a town and you're thirsty, you need water, you're dying, and you say, I need, I need food, I need water, I've been out forever. You're just asking. The first thing that you can do, all you can do is you can ask, where can I get it? And somebody says, go over there, go to that person's house, go there, that's where you can get it. So then what do you do? You seek. You go to the place where you know that it is, and then you get to the door, and what do you do? You knock on the door, and you demand some kind of a response. Now I expect to get what I need. He says, as we do that, as our prayer begins from the general to the specific, as we go from simply asking to now seeking God himself, like I'm seeking God for this thing, and then knocking and knocking and knocking with persistence, he is saying that he will answer you. You come to him often, you come to him loudly and obnoxiously and shamelessly, and he will answer you because of your persistence. He then goes on to say this. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? At the time, there were uh, loaves of bread that were small and round, and they could easily look like certain kinds of stones. Uh, You could give your child a stone if they asked for bread, but that wouldn't be a very nice thing to do. If he asked for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. A serpent is an eel, which is the only thing that they was really, it was unclean. They really couldn't eat it, and they didn't really want to eat it. I mean, who really, really wants to eat an eel, right, when you could eat a fish? So he's saying, who, when their parent asks, when they ask their parent for the the, the good food, says, I'm going to give you the bad food, because for whatever reason, I think that's a good idea. In the Luke version of this, he also says, who asks for an egg and gets a scorpion. It's like, ah, what? Well, there were little white scorpions that would ball up and they're the size of an egg. And sometimes people would actually think they were eggs and pick them up and they would get stung and sometimes they would die. What kind of a parent would say, hey, honey, I'm going to keep this scorpion in a drawer over here balled up and oh man, it's going to be good, right? I've got a friend who's pretty into like pulling pranks on his kids and doing kind of mean stuff to his kids because he thinks it's funny. And, and I do find it somewhat entertaining, I will be honest. And we were in a Bible study group one morning and I brought donuts to the group. And, um, and there were a bunch left over, and he brought a bunch of them home, and he like put them out for his kids. And then he, uh, and then he wrote this note, and it says, I licked one, choose wisely. <laughs> and, uh, 
And then he sent me that picture and he said the funny, and he said the truth is I licked them all, right? That was the best part. Yeah, so good, right? It's so good. So it's one thing to be like, ha, 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 I'm going to like do some kind of little funny, mean prank joke to my kids. And then there's what Jesus is talking about here, which is, listen, parenthood is about provision. It is about taking care of your children who need things and depend on you for things. So if your children depend on you for things and they come asking you, not for video games or for a bike or for a new car, but they come asking you for, for food they come asking you for, um, for things that they need to stay alive, basic, normal, reasonable things. What kind of parent would give them something that would instead cause them harm? No good parent would. And what are parents if not people who simply know more than their kids, right? Who know, I was probably greatly simple, oversimplifying what parents are, parenting is, but, but honestly, Uh, the age gives you a little bit of a benefit. You know when things are going to be helpful and when things are often going to hurt, even when your kids don't recognize that. What Jesus is saying to them is he is saying, be persistent and know that when you ask your heavenly father, that like any good father, he will give you what is ultimately good. He will give you not what will harm you, Not what will make you sick, not what will make you die, not what will make things worse, but he will give you what is ultimately good. Now, Jesus is saying this to a group of people who have a very hard time believing that God works this way. The Israelites have a lot of reasons to be able to point to to say, oh yeah? Well, how about those hundreds of years that we were living in slavery, praying, asking God to deliver us, asking God to bring us out? How long did it take him to do that? How many generations of people only lived through that as what it was to be an Israelite? Or how about a group of people whose forefathers are people like Job who uh, lose everything? And here's the thing about Job, sometimes you don't realize it, we know why he lost everything, he doesn't. He never finds out. So we get a front row seat to why God did that, but not Job. People like him who lose things. Or how about the fact that there was 400 years between the last prophet and Jesus coming? And it was a silence from God to his people asking for him to come and to send a savior, to send someone to lead them once again, to bring them out of bondage and all the things that they were struggling with and suffering from. Jesus is saying to be persistent and to trust their heavenly father when they ask for things to a group of people whose response is probably more likely to say, I don't know if I think prayer even works. It's hard for me to believe that it accomplishes the things that you're saying it accomplishes. And I can't imagine that they're the only ones who would ever feel that way. Who would ever say that when Jesus especially spells it out this much, that we don't feel like asking that question, but does it even work? Do I feel like it accomplishes these things? Do I feel like it does something? Do I feel like my prayers are being heard? Do I feel like my prayers are mattering? Think about that for a second. Is it worth it to pray? Does prayer really do anything? The Israelites were, they were sort of a group of people who basically kept finding out that things were never the way they thought they were going to be. God says, here's what's going to happen, and then it doesn't happen the way they thought that it would happen, right? If you don't feel like prayer works, if you don't feel like it does anything, then what would prayer even be like for you? You probably wouldn't do it a lot. 
You would do it when you should. You would do it when you feel bad. You would do it maybe when you're with others that you're supposed to. And when you did pray, how would that probably feel? It probably wouldn't feel very life-giving. It probably wouldn't feel the way Jesus seemed to feel when he prayed. It would be hard. It would be difficult. And sometimes you would walk away from prayer, maybe kind of more discouraged, other than just sort of a general sense of like, I did something good for me, kind of like working out, right? Didn't see the difference then, but I'll just trust that it was somehow good for me. It was somehow something I was supposed to do. Or it simply becomes nothing more than like meditation. It simply becomes nothing more than a time to slow down and quiet ourselves and recenter ourselves on, on, you know, what we should really be thinking about and our priorities and stuff like that. You see, what what is hard about the kind of prayer that Jesus tells us to pray is that it, it does require a certain level of maturity. You don't have to be a mature person on day one, but the more mature you become in your understanding of him, the more, uh, the more prayer will look the way that Jesus describes it. And maturity is essentially this. It's coming to accept and realize the way that things are. I think that's kind of a good definition of it. It's like, here's the way the world works. I don't want it. And you can do that for so long, and that's immature. And then eventually, it's like hits you in the face sometimes, right? And so you think about it a lot of time with younger people. We associate maturity with age, right? Because when you're really young, or you're younger, you can kind of ignore the way the world works. You can kind of argue against it. You can fight it, right? Because, you know, that's just part of being a kid. That's just part of being young. But the older you get, if you don't grow out of that stuff, people will look at you and say they are immature because you just aren't willing to accept what's really there, what's really happening, the truth of things. Last week, we were, uh, I was in the lobby uh, with Pastor Dave and my son Tegan, and we were like the only ones left, and we were leaving, and uh, he saw, Tegan saw a jacket on the coat rack out there, and it was a Batman jacket. If this is yours, take it, because believe me, I'm going to take it if you don't. And he saw this, this Batman, I'm just kidding, I'm not just going to steal all the jackets, but he saw this Batman jacket, and like the, you put the hood up, and it's got things for the eyes, it was amazing, and he saw it and just went totally nuts, and was so excited, and was like, look at this jacket, what is this, and I'm trying to explain the concept of a lost and found, and all he understands, though, is the concept of a lost, right? And so he's like, he's like, I want this, and for some reason, he thought he could take it, like, I don't know if it was like, this is who my dad is, or if it was like, I'm just a kid, but either way, he was like, I'm taking taking this jacket. It sounds like what you're saying to me is that it has been left here. I don't see anyone here saying it's mine, you know? And so I started saying like, hey, we got to leave it here for a while. If they don't come back and get it, then maybe you could have it. I don't know. I don't know how it all works, you know? And he goes, he goes, no, I want it right now. And I want to take it off. And he cries. And he's really sad. And he's all mopey the rest of the day. And like hours later, do you want some mac and cheese? I just want a jacket. That's all I want. You know, it's like, come on, man. It's been three hours, right? But I kept explaining to him. I was like trying so, I was trying so hard to go, okay, okay. What's your your favorite jacket? What's your favorite jacket? What's the Batman jacket? No, come on before that, right? It's my Spider-Man jacket. Okay, you love your Spider-Man jacket. What would you do if you left it at school and then somebody else had it? and you saw them with it, what would you do? Well, I would go find somebody's parent, or I would go find my teacher, and I would tell them that they have to give me back my jacket. And I'm like, okay, so do you understand? He had no understanding of this. No matter how much I explained it, I'm like, this is not that complicated, but it doesn't connect because it doesn't have to yet, right? It doesn't have to make sense. He doesn't have to live in that world yet, and that's immaturity, right? And at some point, they start 
feeling empathy, I think it comes, I told the first service, I think that comes like in a year or so, and they all laughed at me, so I guess it doesn't come till you're 25 or something. But you actually, you actually make a connection between how I feel and what I do to other people, you know? That's a really big gap, it turns out, to bridge. But that's maturity. It's saying, this is how things are. Am I willing to live in that world? And the way that Jesus um, tells us to pray depends on us being a certain level of maturity, honestly. In 1 Peter, uh, Peter refers to Christians as babies and then infants and then maturing into adulthood. And he doesn't say it to be disrespectful or mean or condescending. He says it to say, you will quite literally be babies in the faith in the beginning. And then you will be adolescents in the faith. And then you will hopefully reach adulthood. And that's a really good thing. Because you move through these phases and God can use you for more and do more for you. And so praying, right, we have to ask ourselves that question, right? In the things that I bring before God, in the things that I expect from God, in the way that I expect even the life and the world to work, do I expect the things that maybe an immature person would expect? Do I expect the things that maybe a more mature person would expect? And there's a couple of things that you have to, I think, do to be able to pray the way Jesus is talking about with maturity. The first thing is you just have to know yourself. And I'm not talking about in some deeply existential way where you have to know your deepest, darkest longings, but you do have to have a level of self-awareness that says, I know my motives here. I know what I want. I know my desires. I know my tendencies. I know my weaknesses. I know what I'm prone to. Maybe I know what I struggle with. And so when I bring my needs before my father, I know some of the stuff that could get in the way of me seeing very clearly when I do that. Oftentimes, the things that we're bringing before God are misguided, they are short-sighted, and they are self-centered. They are wrong by just being misguided. They are short-sighted, we only can see this far, and we only care about right here. Or, they're simply self-centered. It's just entirely about, I just want the thing that will make me happy right here, right now, and I don't care about much beyond that. They can be short-sighted because we can think that we want and need something right now that isn't ultimately what is best, that isn't ultimately what is good. I talked about this before. I don't have to talk about this here, but when I was in fifth grade, I spent an entire summer obsessed with something called... Pogs. And pogs are round cardboard discs that are worth nothing. And I want to emphasize that they're worth nothing, especially now. And I spent an entire summer begging my parents to get me pogs. And they're like, okay, hang on a second. Can you explain again what is this? And why do they cost this much? And what are they for? because they appear to be cardboard discs, right? And then you get these cool slammers, and I mean, talk about a racket, man. You stack up the pogs, and you hit them, and then they flip over, it's a whole thing. Anyway, I guess it's kind of like jacks, you know, but someone figured out a way to make way more money on something like that, right? And so all I cared about one summer was pogs, and they wouldn't give me any money for them, because they're like, that's the, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of anyone spending money on. But I was like, okay, fine, then I'm gonna get some money, and I'm gonna spend it on these things, and when I start sixth grade, I'm gonna be the coolest human being in this middle school, because I will have so many pogs and I'm going to bring them in my backpack and I'm just going to maybe kind of open it and be like, look, everybody, look at all my pogs. Now I get to be the king, right? But I showed up and it turns out that there was some kind of memo that went around over the summer 
Um, and the memo was pogs aren't cool anymore. And so I go to the first day of sixth grade and they are not cool at all. They're not cool at all. And so I just go home and I put, there were these tubes, they're called lava tubes. I put them under the bed and I was like, well, all right, that's it. No more pogs, right? And I, at times, maybe if you don't, re- if you don't relate to that, there you go, pet rock, right? You spend money on a pet rock, okay? Some of you guys are like, okay, that's more like it, right? The thing, there are things that we will desire and we will want, and that desire is so incredibly short-sighted, and yet it's all that we can think about, and it feels like all that we need, and it feels like very much life itself. And the short-sightedness can get in the way of us actually even knowing what to ask our Father for and being open to what is truly good for us. The other thing that we see is that they're not just short-sighted, but they're self-centered. That our prayers so often are just, are just, here's what I want, here's what I need, that's it. What I want, what I need. It's a world full of billions of people asking for what I want and what I need. Well, I'm sure that will work, right? I'm sure that makes sense. And that's kind of where the immaturity comes in, is going, I don't need to worry about how he makes it work. God will make it all work. But, you know, here's what I want, here's what I need. And this is one of the reasons why it is so important that we have each other, that we can actually pray with other people. Because I can pray for things for you that you might not be able to pray for for yourself, you know? I mean, if you ask me to pray for you about something, if you're sick and you want healing, if you're going through a trial and you want it to end, I'm going to be honest with you. I will pray for that, but I will pray for other stuff too. I will pray that God's will is done in your life. I know. Can you believe it? So know that, I guess, you know, if you ask that that's what's going to happen. But we do that because sometimes for us, one of the hardest things to do is to pray for the things that are not selfish. All that we can think of is, 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 like, is like surviving what we're going through and what we're in if things are hard. If we have something in front of us and we go, God, I cannot possibly conceive of a reality in which this thing is not a good thing for me. Just let me have it. But sometimes we're wrong. Much of the time we're wrong. And they're misguided. Sometimes we're just asking for the wrong thing, not because it's selfish, but because we just don't understand. We don't understand enough that we see fully what needs to happen and maybe what ultimately is the best thing, which is what our Father sees. I heard this guy talk about something called a prayer shot block once, which is like you're in a group of people and you're praying, and somebody goes like, God, I just want to, want to pray for this person I'm dating in this relationship, you know, that you would help it work out and make it stronger and make us get, get stop fighting with each other, and, and then one day we can get married. And then, like, somebody in the group's thinking, yeah, I don't think that should happen. Like, that's not, they're not, it's not good. They're not good together. It's not a good thing. And so they kind of do a shot block where they go, yeah, God, and I just want to pray that your will would be done and that you would just give them what they need, you know, and you're kind of trying to, like, okay, well, you know, we'll just hit that out of the hoop maybe and, and see if it goes back up in there, right? And that's because a lot of times the things that we ask for are simply misguided. It's that we simply don't see clearly enough to see what it is that we really need. And so the first thing is that we just have to know ourselves. We have to, we have to know what's going on inside of us. We have to know that sometimes there are struggles and idols and tendencies and things that are going on. And sometimes we simply live and we only have, we only possibly can see so much. We can only possibly know so much. And so we can only understand often so much of the picture. Any good counselor will tell you that the only character flaws that can really destroy you are the ones that you won't admit. 
And this is why we, we seek to know ourselves when we come to God in prayer. Because there is a difference between uh, being able to even admit the things that are there in our lives and not even knowing that they're there at all. And so apart from knowing ourselves, the other thing that we have to be able to do if we're going to pray with maturity, we're going to pray this way that Jesus is talking about, is we have to really seek him. The Sermon on the Mount can be summed up by your kingdom come, your will be done. And so if ultimately our desire is to seek our Father, even above all else, because the, then, then we will see the power of the way Jesus is talking about prayer working. We will experience the kind of prayer that Jesus has talked about because God will always give us himself. He will always give us more of himself when we ask for it because that is always good. There is only one thing that is always good all the time and it is our Father. Everything else we don't totally know, really, in any situation, any given time, but we know with him. As I was talking to many about um, the, the week that we talked about fear and anxiety, um, I was talking to so many of you who we were saying in one form or another, you know, the whole reason you don't have fear and have anxiety is because you know that if you have Jesus, then you have everything you need. But if you don't have Jesus, then yeah, you do have a lot of fear and anxiety. But if you have Jesus, then you will be okay. <coughs> I've talked about this a lot before, but there's a point in my life when I had all these health issues that I started to get full of anxiety and full of fear. And at that time, it started out just, God, would you just, would you please help me be better? And then months later, it was, God, I need to be better. Like, this needs to go away. People need me. I know that you need me. I need to be better. And then months down the road, it was, God, I am desperate to be better. How in the world could it possibly make sense that of any of the things that you've called me to do, of any of the places you've put me in life, of any of the roles you've given me, of any of the things you put before me, that it makes sense that I'm not well with those things? And at the time, I had a, uh, I had a prayer team. I was a you know, pastor to church. Not everybody has prayer teams. I think I was a pastor to church, and, and I had this group of people that would pray for me on a regular basis, and I would meet with someone every week, and, uh, and I would tell them what's going on in my life, and then they would, the team would pray for me every day. There was somebody praying for me. And so we would meet week after week, and, and eventually after a few months, I was getting really discouraged, and they said, what do you want me to pray for? And I was like, I, honestly, I don't even, I don't know. I'm like not, I'm not sure anymore. And they were like, well, I, do you want me to just pray that God's will is done in your life? And it took me way too long to say yes to that. Like, <laughs> they asked me that, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And then I walked away from that meeting a little worried, pretty worried. I was pretty afraid of what that would mean and what would happen if the prayer that, God, your will would be done, knowing that his will might not be, that I'm better, that I'm okay. And I told Ellie during that time, you know, oh man, like I'm learning so much, this is so great, but you know, I just, it just needs to end, and like, you know, as once I'm better, it'll all just end or whatever. I mean, I could like write a book about this stuff, you know, and she's like, oh, that would be the worst book ever, I would never read it, I would tell everybody not to read it, because it would, because it'd be totally fake, and it'd like not be real, because you don't actually believe it, and, um, which is so great. And, 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 and I, I get to this point 
over months and months and months where it's like, I finally get to this point where I start to feel like I actually want God more than I want to be better, than I want to be okay. And I, and I, I say that and I belabor that and draw that out because that's a really, um, I think for many of us, a really big thing to find ourselves actually saying that we want, right? That we actually want God more than we want the thing that he can give us. And isn't this at one of the most basic fundamental truths of all prayer? That we would tell our children, that we would tell people who are just new to the faith, that we would say you can't love the gift more than the giver. And then we all go on loving the gift more than the giver, right? Because it's difficult. It's difficult to truly want that which is truly good all the time for us. I want more of you, God. I want you more, God. It's called appropriating. And I love this word, even though it's such a lame word, which means just to take something on and to actually live in light of it now. It's like you could have a drawer full of money and never open it, never touch it, and just live like a poor person. Or you could say, I'm going to spend all that money. I'm going to do all this stuff. And people are going to look at my life and they're going to go, well, they have money. That's appropriating something. That's taking it on and actually living your life in a way that is changed by that thing. And there are so many things that we understand and that we read and that we talk about. So many things that we struggle to actually have appropriated in our lives. I can't think of a better example of this than King David before he's king. Um, he's being chased by Saul who's trying to kill him and he's hiding in caves and he's been wrongfully accused of things and God has even like anointed him as king and has wanted him to be king and he has chosen not to forcefully take that place when he could have but instead to let things play out because he believes that's how God wants it to go and he's hiding in a cave and he's writing some of these psalms out and praying them to God and this is what he prays to God when he's being pursued um, for his life unjustly. In Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing, this is it. He gets to the part now where he asks for something. And this is what David asks for when being pursued. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is to truly seek God more than maybe anything else that we could seek in prayer. And, and I think that this is very, very difficult. And so we keep asking we keep seeking, we keep knocking, we persist in prayer. And one of the things that we find when we persist in prayer, for many, I think is that uh, it gets harder before it gets easier. Is that when you really start to spend time in prayer, maybe whereas you haven't before, or you try to pray not just asking for things that you want, but actually seeking to know God more in, in, in whatever's going on in your life. One of the first things that we can often encounter is the difficulty that you encounter when you don't take care of your car for a really long time, and then you open up the hood and you look underneath it, and you're like, ooh, 
just going to close that and take it somewhere, okay? And there's an author that wrote about this um, in a book on prayer, a 19th century um, theologian, and he says this, the first thing we learn in attempting to pray is our spiritual emptiness, and this lesson is crucial. We are so used to being empty that we do not recognize the emptiness as such until we start to try to pray. We don't feel it until we begin to read what the Bible and others have said about the greatness and promise of prayer. Then we finally begin to feel lonely and hungry. It's an important first step to fellowship with God, but it is a disorienting one. I think this is true for many of us, and I would say that is an encouragement to say that's common, but keep going. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Why? Why do we keep asking and seeking and knocking? Why do we keep pursuing a God even when it feels like the answer doesn't come right away? It's because of what we read about in Ephesians. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's why we do it. That's why we go to him in prayer. That's why we persist. And that's why we trust that he knows what is good and what is best. Because he has proven himself to be the one who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask and than all that we think. How do we know that? Because you look throughout scripture and ours is a God who has pursued his people again and again. That he has pursued his people time and again and he has continued to make a way to be with his people. In the greatest way in which he has done this is through what he's done through his son. That at a point when there was no way that we could be with our father, there's no way that we could ultimately be right with him. He has made a way to be with us, for us to be with him through the death of his son. It's why this morning we're gonna, we're gonna sing and we're gonna pray. We're gonna worship and we're gonna reflect and we're going to express gratefulness to God and we're going to take communion. And the reason we take communion is because this is like, this is proof to us of who our Father is and it is the only way that we can come to Him in prayer. When we say in, in Jesus' name, that means that we can only come to our Father. We can only say our Father in heaven. We can only even say that in the beginning of our prayer or at the end of our prayer because of what Jesus has done for us that we can have a relationship with him. And so as we, as we, as we do this, we're going to pass around communion and we're gonna, you can hang on to it, you can take it, or you can, you, can, you can wait and I'll get back up after a song and we'll take it together. But as we do this, we do this to remember that ours is a God who has done far more abundantly than all that we can ask or than we can imagine. That he's done it through his son, that he has done it in each and every one of our lives in ways that we can point to and that he will continue to do it even when our expectations are so often shamefully low. And so let's worship and let's, let's reflect upon this and then in a little bit we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you truly are this good Father. It's hard for us to believe at times. We want to lower our expectation of you. We want to lower our, def our expectation of how prayer works. We want to be tempted to expect less and ask less and think there will always be less, but Jesus is right there telling us more, more, more. Ask more, expect more. Know that your Father is better than you even think he is. And so our prayer is that we would truly believe that, that we would take that on and live it in light of it. 
And we thank you for what you've done in your son. That in his sacrifice that we could be made whole. That we could truly come to you as your children. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, that is our prayer. And for many of us, it's not, it's a difficult prayer to make. As much as we know that all we should need is you. Um, as much as we want that to be true, for many of us, that, that doesn't feel true. There's so much more that we want. There's so much more that we need. And so as we sing these songs, Father, as we worship you, we do it asking that you would, for many of us, change our hearts and show us the beauty of who you are. Show us that thing that we lost in the garden, which is a sense of how much we desperately need and depend on you for all things rather than want to push you away and prove our own independence, Lord. God, you've been so good to us. And we just pray, Father, for the courage to be persistent to you, to bring everything that we need to you, to bring every issue and concern and thought and joy and praise to you, to do it for one another, to do it for ourselves, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.